Welcome to Honorverse Today, the Honor Harrington podcast brought to you by TPE Network. Let's be about it. Hello there, Honor First fans. Welcome once again to another exciting, boom-filled episode of Honorverse Today. This is Raul Wybera, and I am joined, as always, by my good friends Jim Arrowwood and J.P. Harvey. Ha- ah, coffee ground. Hairball? <coughs> How are you two gentlemen doing this fine day? Doing great. <laughs> We're doing fine, too. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're Sorry laughing, folks. Because I, I've got a I, I've got coffee tonight, and instead of my usual fizzy drink, and I just got coffee grounds stuck on my tongue. <laughs> you don't know what it's like trying to speak into a mic, uh, spitting out grounds. Yeah. Well, as JP too said, much information, I suspect. Felt like a hairball, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure that'll make the blooper real. <laughs> oh gosh so tonight we're not talking about a novel we're talking about another anthology which has a few stories that seem to be creeping up into the length of novels yes yeah and novellas that for means sure. huh novellas for sure yeah for at least a couple of them certainly on that for those of you who may be new listeners we don't follow the typical format we've been running with our books uh, Jim, since you developed it, I'm going to let you explain how we're going to approach these uh, varying short stories to novellas. Okay, very well. Uh, we just take each story as an individual segment, and we talk about the story itself, the synopsis. Uh, JP talk gives us some background information and suggests themes. Uh, Raul leads us through uh, the discussions, quotes, impressions we kind of combine that and finally we give it a rating for the each one for the individual story right for each story a thumbs up thumbs down or neutral so that's how we do this and we're going to do it several times tonight because of there are several stories indeed there are and the anthology we will be reviewing tonight is the service of the sword which is the fourth Worlds of Honor anthology. And the final one. And it's also the title of one of the stories. Yes. All right. So shall we just move right in? There are, what, five in this particular, I think? Yes. In this book? Yes. So, yeah, I think it might be best if we do. All right. So the number one, the first story on the list is Promised Land by Jane Linskold. Uh, We've heard from her before, and here is your synopsis. Michael Winton, sister of Queen Elizabeth III, graduates from the Saginami Island Academy and enters her service as a midshipman in the Royal Navy. He is dismayed when he learns he will be assigned to a ship that is stationed in the home system and hasn't seen combat for years. Believing he is being shielded 
uh, from Dangerous Service, he convinces his superior to have him assigned to the RMN Intransigent, a light cruiser being sent to attend negotiations with the Masada system. On Masada, Judith, a young Grayson-born woman who managed to educate herself, conceives of and organizes a plan to escape the oppression of the Masadan misogynistic system of female oppression. While executing her plan, she is discovered by Dinah, the first wife of Judith's oppressive captor. Dinah tells her about the Sisterhood of Barbara, a group of educated Masadan women who aspire to escape captivity Judith is believed to be the sisterhood's Moses sent by God to lead them to a better life. When Judith executes her plan commandeering a shuttle, the Manticorans are asked to help the Masadans stop and take back the shuttle. Judith also asks for help not being recaptured. Michael is sent Judith's ship to investigate the situation. When Michael learns what has happening, with the women on board, he helps them increase the power of their shuttle. The Masadans pursue Judith and, while intransigent takes most of the Masadan fire, the shuttle suffers several hits to the bridge. Dinah suffers a heart attack in the middle of the battle before the shuttle jumps to hyperspace. While tending to Judith, she tells Dinah that she has always been the real Moses of the Sisterhood. Judith is taken aboard the Intransigent and treated. The commander of Intransigent offers to send the replacement crew over to the shuttle consisting of all women, but Judith said that a crew including Manticoran men is acceptable. Well, there it is. JP. All right. So first, the anthology itself, the, this whole the whole book, originally published in April of 2003. It was at, at that publication, 665 pages and uh, contains these cool stories we're going to talk about. There is a host of authors, including David Weber himself, and you'll hear who those writers are as we work our way mm-hmm. through each of the stories. Okay, this first story features several characters, but the character to focus on is Judith Templeton, a young Masadan woman who is a member of a secret group called the Sisterhood, as you heard. Within the Honorverse, this is one of two short stories, by the way, by Jane Linskold. As with her other short story, she brings our focus onto a strong female character. And for those that, that are interested or don't remember... In the other story, the strong female character was Queen Elizabeth III. And I think we will get another short story, at least one more. Actually, the uh, from Jane. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, actually, I know we get more than one from, but related to this. And we're going to see Jane writing. Well, you're, I'll let you continue because yeah, yeah. I think you're going to talk about that. My next comment about her is that we're familiar and, and I'll say comfortable with her. She authored... And I said two earlier, three here, so I correct myself. Queen's Mm -hmm. Gambit, which was in Worlds of Honor. This story, and then a story called Ruthless, which is found in Fire Forged. She also collaborated with David on three of the four novels in the Star Kingdom series. Fire Season, which was published in 2012. Tree Cat Wars in 2013. And uh, A New Clan in 2022. And apparently I'm... Yeah, I said three of the four novels. 
So those are the ones, and we will dive into those at the appropriate time. So that's the background on the book, the whole book, and then on this first story about Jane. Don't uh, I'm going to say it later, but in my opinion, don't be distracted by the fact that Michael is in there. It's important that he's there, but the, the focus ought to be on this young lady, Jane. Um, you want me to roll into some... some uh, Go ahead. Yes, please do. All right. Themes. By the way, themes for all these stories, uh, in some cases, I kind of had to think about how the story tied to the main series. It, there weren't, there were all kinds of topics, but it was hard in some cases to pull a theme out. So bear with me and as always add your thoughts, please don't mm-hmm. just go with my list. Here, I, I, I'll offer that subversion and dissent are a theme and we'll comment that in this case, it might be for the right reasons. Ah, uh, that's good. Specifically talking that's about good. Judith and the sisterhood. Military logistics is interestingly briefly featured in here through a very few set of comments, but it, it caught my attention that time was taken to call that out. And when we get to quotes, actually I have a quote to highlight what that was about. Junior officer development, and that's We've seen this before in the case of the midshipmen that are being discussed, Michael, certainly. The introduction of the relationship between Michael Winton and Judith Templeton, and that's going to be a thing. And you Mm kind of see that hinted at in here, and uh, I think we've... we've, JP, you've got a really good knack at catching David's or uh, the series little hints and hooks. Well, I'm digging the stories, so I... I Thank you for for that. I, at some point, I'll I'll go way astray, and you guys will go. What did you read? <laughs> so. Now, there is an additional theme I would really like to add. Yeah, because we'll we'll see this again later in, in this uh, particular anthology, and it's the theme of merit versus birth. Okay, we see that uh, very much in uh, in display with Michael Winton. We're going to see it in a later story in this anthology, and it's going to be a recurring theme in actually both of the uh, secondary, both both of the uh, spinoff arcs. Awesome. So those and, are the themes, unless uh, Jim, if you had uh, any others you wanted to throw in. Uh, Masadans are not good people. <laughs> the men, anyway. Yeah. So, in fact, th- this would be a great segue into uh, in- your impressions, any discussion and quotes that you might have. Okay. And Jim, I'm going to go ahead and pass it to you first. And as we always do on this, if uh, JP, if you've got a thought or a question or a comment, definitely feel free to hop in on it. Okay. Okay. So Jim. I, okay. I like this story, even if it did anger me. I really do not like the Masadans at all, not even a tiny bit. I enjoyed the way the author start, started with uh, two story threads and brought them together, showing her craft at weaving a tale that was entertaining and evoked emotions. I like Michael and have a lot of respect for him choosing to take more risk than necessary to show he was serious about his time in the Navy. Uh, I look forward to seeing him in future stories. Uh, My takeaway is never underestimate the power of someone who is determined to accomplish a deeply held goal. And I have no quotes. That's a good takeaway. Yeah. And now I'll pass the baton to JP. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Well, I also like this story. I don't count it among my favorites, but it was good. So I don't I don't want to suggest that it it was not enjoyable or anything. I, I liked it. I like how Michael Winton is introduced at the beginning, making us think the story's about him. While it is to some extent, it struck me as primarily a story about Judith, as I mentioned before. <clears throat> and that that tracks with how Jane has written characters. She, she, like I mentioned, also she tends to feature or focus or establish strong women, and Judith certainly falls into that category. It also gives us a little more background or context for what Masada is really like, a, a deeper peek underneath the hood or inside of what we've already seen. In my mind, they've gone from pretty bad to bad without any caveats, so I'm, I'm with you, Jim. I look forward to seeing more Judith and more Michael in the future as well. And I have one short quote, and this is an observation about Osgood Rousseau, who goes by Ozzy in the story. His family is associated with the Hauptmann cartel, and the quote is about logistics. It makes sense if these are these are merchants, right? The Hauptmanns are all about moving a lot of stuff all over the place and making money doing it. Here's the quote. Ozzy was specializing in supply. Logistically, he was brilliant, able to glance at a complicated schematic and reduce it to its component parts before Michael had finished reading the headers. Although supply was outside the line of command and thus often discounted by ambitious sorts, Michael was enough of a history buff to realize that many battles had been won or lost even before they were joined due to logistical considerations. And because I tend to go back to my own experiences and my own readings, I will suggest a couple books here for people that are interested in how logistics plays in war, because that statement written in here by Jane could have been a statement written in by David, too, highlighting something that people do tend to look past. So lots of books out there. If you do an Amazon search on war and the military, uh, war and logistics, military and logistics, what have you. But I'll, I'll offer you a couple because I've actually read them, and they're probably a neat place to start. First is one called "Moving Mountains" by Lieutenant General William Pagonas, and he has a co-author Jeffrey. I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher Jeffrey's name, but it's Krukshank. Krukshank. That was published in 1992. And it details the logistics efforts of the Gulf War, at least early in the early in the Gulf War. The second book, so that's that is a general talking about the logistics for a real war. This is history, essentially, not not uh, fiction. The second one is called "Supplying War: Logistics from Wallenstein to Patton," and that's by an author named Martin Van Creveld, and that was published in 1979. So there are a couple. One that's going to cover some older history and one that's going to cover some, I'll call it recent history. Uh, those are good places to start if you want to really get a deep dive or a dive into logistics and the role it plays to really putting forces in the field and up against an enemy and not and not uh, doing silly things like outrunning your supply lines. So Raul, your turn, good sir. Okay. And I, ha having read the full series, I, I, I do have things, probably a few more comments. But going into that, though, uh, on the one hand, this is an excellent story. In my opinion, it's probably Jane's best contribution to the Honorverse. In fact, it's my fav second favorite story of the, uh, of the anthology, to be honest. However, there's a couple of problems that I 
can't overlook. I want to get those out of the way now so I can focus on the story itself, which I really did like. And it's just two things to call out. The The biggest is that the dialogue can be inconsistent. And I think I mentioned that on the last uh, Jane Linskold short. Yeah, I think you did. She writes some of the better Oniverse lines. In fact, that one of my quotes out of this anthology is from this story. But there's still points that they can be a little seem a little rough or stiff or they just don't feel like that's how people would talk. Now, you're not going to hear me complain much about this uh, going forward. When we start getting it, one of the things I really like about her contributions into the universe is you can see the maturation of her writing, and I love it. The other issue that I had was there's some bits of continuity. There's some issues in bits of continuity or plot devices. Grayson's harshness towards women, for example. In fact, we get a contrast with that in the last book with with, with, uh, Abigail, for example. Or the idea that that, uh, the Masadans are just rejecting the idea of prolong. As far as, you know, from the, in the tech, it's like, no, that this is something that has never been even offered to them. And it, they were just little things that made me look a bit askance. Now I can accuse them because of two big reasons or three reasons, actually. She's a guest in another author's uh, sandbox playground. So you, you kind of expect a little of those. It's a short story where those kinds of inconsistencies are a lot more common. And frankly, uh, where she does do it, it's kind of done to serve the story. So speaking of the story itself, it's not only is it a wonderful story, as, as JP had mentioned, it's got some important background information. Michael and Judith are actually pretty important characters that we'll be encountering in the future. So JP, you're going to get your wish. Good. And while it may be that they're secondary characters, uh, their daughter Ruth is very important, as in one of the main characters series important. And oh, I really want to talk about Ruth. I really want to talk about Ruth. <laughs> I we will spoilers. one day. Some spoilers. Day. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> mo- mo- moving on. Mo- moving on. Uh, another element that was really important to me out of this was the reminder that while Manticorn's standards, Grayson maybe neobarbs we tend to forget that they were still even masada even though they weren't as advanced but they were technologically advanced spacefaring nations uh they're they're backwards by manticoran standards not by the standard of human development but i am going to point out a final very important part of uh her linskold's contribution here in to the Honorverse, and that she provides some attention to Masada, which seems to have been kind of forgotten in the big arc of the story. And her development here is actually going to, it's actually going to be important in the future. And I've got to tell you, going way back to the third book, it was her work here that first clued me in on the thinking in context of the Sons of Abraham with, uh, aspect to the grace and masada relationship and without giving any spoilers there's going to be things related to this that we're going to see going forward possibly i think as early as the next book the the status of the two the status of women and the two uh 
societies is also very much worth noting and will come up again. And it speaks for the two societies in very, you know, in many more ways. In both, in both stories, yes, women have a secondary citizen status. In one of the stories, it's because that women are so darn precious, and frankly, they're their hope of salvation. In the other, it's that women are basically chattel as punishment for the sins of their society. And that that's going to be, a, that's gonna, it's good to see some of the clarification of that, of that context. I do have a quote for this story right at the very beginning, and frankly, it's one of the better hooks I've ever seen on a short story, even though, like JP points out, it turns out to be a little bit misdirection. Michael's response was long, eloquent, and suggested that he'd hung around with Marines at some time in his life. This was true. His sister was married to a former Marine, but Justin Zier had never used language like that in Michael's hearing. Keep in mind, we don't know who Michael is at this point, but by now we're getting suspicious. Todd listened, his expression mingling shock and grudging admiration. Two years, he said. Two years I share a room with you and never do I learn that you can swear like that. Michael didn't answer. He was too busy grabbing various items of clothing, obviously preparatory to storming out of the room. Hey, Michael, where are you going? To talk to someone about my posting. You can't. It isn't official yet. If I wait until it's official, Michael said, his voice tight, then it's going to be too late, in subordination at least. Now I might be able to do something. Todd was too smart to fight a losing engagement. Who are you going to talk to, Commander Shrake? No, I'm going to scream Beth. If this is her idea, I need to know why. If it isn't her idea, I need to know so someone can't try to convince me that it is. When I know that, then I'll try Shrake. Forewarned is forearmed, Todd agreed. Michael nodded. One thing his comm training had taught him. Find a secure line if you want to discuss a sensitive matter. He guessed it was pretty sensitive when you were going to place a person-to-person call to the queen. And the mm-hmm. light bulb comes on about Michael. And the light bulb comes on, yep. And, and, and I'm sorry, that is just an absolute fantastic hook. That alone, you, you, no matter what else happens, you're going to finish this story. At that point, you're hooked, you're in it. Mm-hmm. So from there, gentlemen, what are your thumbs saying? Oh, I gave, I gave the story a thumbs up. That was easy. I did too. Yeah. Also, you know, not two folk- thumbs up, a, a thumbs up also. <laughs> this would come right to And folks, so don't be fooled by the issues I had mentioned earlier. I love the story you know, and the follow-up, by the way. Just kind of compare that with uh, Jim and Murray. <laughs> so for, for me, this was also an easy thumb up. Ah, <laughs> oh, boy. So three thumbs up for... Three thumbs up. For that story. And uh, the next one is With One Stone by Timothy Zahn. Uh, Honor's ship, the Fearless, is awaiting to head for convoy duty near Silesia. Before they ship out, Raphael Cardonas is transferred from his post on Fearless, and Admiral Sonia Hampill sends him to work with a team of specialists who are to investigate a new weapon that is much like the Gravlance Honor used at the first battle of Basilisk. It seems that this new version can take down an impeller wedge of a starship 
at incredible distances. While Cardona's travels with the team to the Ehrenschaft system, the Fearless leaves on convoy duty to protect a group of five merchantmen. It isn't long before Fearless encounters the IANS Neue Bayern, an Andermani ship in the area charged with finding a missing ship, IANS Alliant. When Captain Grubner of the Neues Bayern hears Honor's name, he becomes very interested in meeting her because of her reputation. They meet aboard the Neues Bayern and decide to coordinate their efforts. What neither the Andermani or Manticoreans know is that the ship carrying the new weapon is the peep ship PNS Vanguard. The weapon they carry is called the Crippler, given to them by an arms dealer only known as Charles. While the captain of Vanguard remains skeptical about the new wonder weapon, his commander, Commodore Dominic, plans to drive a wedge between the Manticoran Andermonte relationships using Alliant in actions against the Manticorans. The team Cardonis is serving on goes to the Arnschelt system aboard the Shadow. Upon arrival, the team investigates the hulk of a Manticoran merchant ship, Lorelei, which was destroyed by the new secret weapon. They learn that all the impeller nodes went into simultaneous overload when hit with the Crippler. Cardonis and Captain Sandler travel to the Sun Skater Resort on a comet posing as a married couple on their honeymoon in the Tyler Star System. While there, they observe an attack from an unidentified vessel against a freighter. Cardonis figures out that the Office of Naval Intelligence has been feeding information to the peeps to lure them to certain target areas. They then return to the shadow. Soon afterward, the team including Cardonis, commandeer the merchant vessel Dorado, and re-outfits their impeller nodes with self-resetting circuit breakers, thus rendering the vessel invulnerable to crippler attacks. The convoy led by Fearless is attacked by Vanguard and Alliant, which has been renamed Forerunner. The circuit breakers would allow Dorado to bring their wedge back online, but Captain Sandler orders Cardonis not to do this to prevent the peeps from learning their weapon has been foiled. Seeing the sacrifice of Fearless and the convoy, Cardonis dissipates Sand <laughs> dissipates. Seeing the sacrifice of Fearless and the convoy, Cardonis disobeys Sandler's direct order and brings the wedge back online. The crew then abandons the freighter after setting it on a collision course for Vanguard. Vanguard tried to destroy the oncoming ship, but their wedges intersecting, causing the obliteration of both vessels. The Forerunner tries to escape, but is stopped by the Noya Bayern, the Peep's surrender. Upon the return from the mission, Cardonis is reprimanded by Admiral Hemphill, but she decides not to court-martial him, but instead sends him back to resume his duties aboard Fearless. Well, there it is. I have a question. Am I the only person on the planet that when they see Dorado without the L in front of it, tries to say Dorito? <laughs> uh, yes, you are. Or is this one I of those things that... L in front of it. 
<laughs> or, or, or is this one of those I didn't things change it that, to a snack. Uh, now that I've said it, you'll never get it out of your head? No, I won't remember that at all. Trust me. <laughs> That's why senility is bliss. <laughs> all right. You want some background? Yes, please. Please. This one happens very shortly after the events in On Basilisk Station with the new heavy cruiser Fearless, your reference to the Fearless, in operation. This is the ship, as a reminder, that replaced the former light cruiser Fearless that was destroyed. Timothy Zahn has authored three short stories in the Honorverse, this one being the first, along with An Act of War, which is in Fire in, in Fireforged. And A Call to Arms, which is in Beginnings. He also appears to have authored a fourth one called Traitor in a uh, 2023, that would be right now, anthology called What Price Victory. Finally, he collaborated with David in all four novels in the Manticore Ascendant series. So he is no stranger to the universe. And no, then, not, uh, not themes, at all. Yeah, he's... He's given, he's given the, the story a lot of ink. On themes, we have loyalty. And in this case, I will argue it's misplaced loyalty that we see happening through Rafe. Uh, related to that, disobedience that we also see in him. The bigger picture as a theme. Remember, Rafe is a junior officer at this point. This particularly applies to him, but also gen in general. You never know everything, especially as a junior officer. And a junior officer who can't understand that or won't learn it or isn't being taught that by more senior officers and, and learn to accept that will, will fail in their career, again, as a rule, not 100% mm -hmm. of the time. Any other thoughts about themes that you guys saw from here that tie back to the bigger story? No, I, th I think you've got it. Mm -hmm. I would add, I, I would add that uh, to not so much to the themes, but uh, in the Manticore Ascendant uh, series, he's actually the lead author for this, and I think David uh, mentioned that during the uh, interview. Yes, I think he did. And uh, Tom Pope also played an important role in its writing as well. He wasn't credited on the first book uh, on the cover, but he is. Tom is on the others that follow. Yeah. And I'll throw it. I want to throw another phrase in related to the disobedience theme. Cause I, I think they're, I mean, Rafe disobeys. That's, that's a, it's just blatant, but there mm -hmm. is a thing that I'm sure will become a good topic of discussion. Another time, uh, called professional descent. And I think it's come up before, but it, it's something that, I, I'm just going to assume and believe is there'll be opportunities to discuss it. And that is how, when, where, and why an officer is expected to dissent on the record with their leadership. This isn't quite that. This is just this, this blunt disobedience. But sometimes disobedience can be anchored to professional dissent. So more on that another time, because I think given what we've seen from from David and the folks that write with him, I just got to believe that's going to come up again another time and lend itself to a good discussion. Mm -hmm. So, so about? Um, actually, I, I'm going to shake the order up a little. Uh, if nobody objects, 
because JP, you've just kind of given a segue into your thoughts and impressions. So if you don't okay. object to uh, no. taking the lead on this one, go for it. It's pretty short and sweet. For me, in a strange way, this story was fun. I love the action. I like the relationship that forms between Lieutenant Cardona's and Captain Sandler. I was very disappointed in his actions when he disobeyed a direct order regarding not bringing up the ship's wedge. In my, in my mind, and based only on what we know in the story, that was inexcusable. And as the story is written, we see at the end that the situation is salvaged kind of in spite of his offense. Presumably that becomes an important lesson learned by a junior officer who we'd later see progressing through his career. I think the fact that what happened, meaning the events around what was happening were classified, that's probably what protected him. If Kind of like decorations you can't wear on your uniform or, or acknowledge publicly that you have. How do you court-martial an officer f- for doing a bad thing in the middle of a th- thing that is not acknowledged? The whole point, the wedge wasn't supposed to come up, right? We can't let the enemy know what we know. Mm-hmm. Well, you're going to prosecute him? Because now yeah, it's public. I, he, he might not have gotten he might not have gotten court martialed otherwise, but he certainly would have been subject to definitely some yeah more stringent disciplinary action. So I'm a, no I'm a fan. Anybody listening, I am a fan of the character of Rafe Cardonis. But he messed up, in my opinion, in the story. This was an example of a young officer who totally did the wrong thing worked out yeah, and when but, we, what we see on the other flip side of it is honor did have uh it, it's pretty i'm pretty confident honor had the situation under control yes yes so when i talked about loyalty as a theme and misplaced loyalty that that's at the heart of it for for rafe because he is so loyal mm-hmm. to honor that he is taking actions apparently assuming that his superiors are too stupid to understand how awful this is. We can't just, either that or it was a personal affection for her, and I don't mean an inappropriate one. No. But that I, also I cannot interfere, and and for whatever the reason it did. So that's uh, that's where I'm going. But I this is a critique of a guy that I like. I like Rafe. And I think if you go back and look at the interview with uh, the, the debrief with him, Phil, e- even if this were a, e- even with this being a classified in. I don't think if he didn't give exactly the answer that he gave to her mm-hmm. challenge, yeah, I, I I have no doubt he 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 would have. How, how did she put it? I, that would have been a good quote. Uh, he 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 would have spent a couple of days waiting for to <laughs> catching up with his ass. Yeah, something like that. Yep. Mm. But those those are those are yep. my uh, impressions or thoughts about the story. Mm-hmm. But Jim, I'm going to give it to you next. All right. I thought this was a great story, uh, but you know, when when I saw Timothy Zahn, uh, his byline there, I knew it was it was going to be good. He he's no stranger to science fiction fans. Uh, Zahn wrote the wrote a classic Honor Harrington story here, complete with a setup, an epic battle at the end. I I just loved it. Uh, my favorite part of this was to vis- when they visited the resort. And when the peep officers entered the room, they saw way too many suitcases around for the possessions that they had. 
So Cardonis filled the suitcases with the hotel's property to throw the officers off the trail. Okay, I love the reaction of the hotel manager upon seeing all these towels and and bathrobes and ashtrays and everything in the luggage. <laughs> it was good thinking. Yeah, it, it was. sure was. <laughs> so when they uh, and then when they did the refit of the circuit breakers, uh. I wish Zahn had come up with something more interesting to call them, like self-sealing stem bolts or something like that. I don't get a laugh for that. Kiss principle. Oh, for crying out loud. (laughs) Oh, jeez. Well, that that, uh, joke went over like a lead balloon. Okay, no quotes. (laughs) Go ahead, Raul. Hurry up. Save my butt here. (laughs) Okay. Like a lot of people, I discovered Timothy Zahn with the Thrawn trilogy from Star Wars. Loved him ever since. And yeah, he he does not disappoint at all as one of the major collaborators in the Honorverse. And like JP said, we're going to get a lot more of him. One of the things I've found particularly fascinating about Zahn's writing in general is when he writes in another author's sandbox, he is able to blend in flawlessly, but he still has his own individuality in his writing. I, I mean, it's like, the, the, it's a perfect fit into the universe. He gets the characters, he gets everything about them exactly right, but it's still, this is Timothy Zahn's writing. And, and, and he keeps that individual flair to it, which is fantastic. Uh, there's a lot of slice of life aspect to the story. And that presents a lot of difficulties since this story occurs in a very well-documented series of past events where we've never had the slightest inkling that the story even occurred. Mm. The fact that this involves some of the Honorverse's most important characters complicates that even further. And it's especially tricky because, you know, the, the relationship between Rafe and Honor really grows a lot over the course of the series. In spite of that, Zahn manages to tie everything up neatly and take the new technology that's introduced in this very cleanly off the table. So all the little loose ends that could turn into retcons or continuity, all the, he ties it all up, puts it on a bow, neat as can be. Uh, getting a story that features Rafe is a real treat here for me. He's one of the main characters of the Honorverse, and frankly, it, it kind of saddened me to see him getting a little less attention than people like McKeon or Brigham or Truman. And I'm glad Zahn did something about it, even though the heart of the story is really a learning experience for uh, Cardones. And did you guys notice, Zahn seems to have a knack for writing Andermani. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Keep that in mind. Yeah. Hadn't really thought about that, but he, he did a great job. Yeah. Keep, keep that in mind. Rose, a little hint. Okay. You big right. tease. My biggest disappointment in this story is what didn't happen. And I'm not talking about in the story. I'm talking about in the honor verse in general. I really, 
really wanted to see more of this Charles character. He's going to be coming back once more in another Tim Zahn short. Dang it! I w- I really would have loved to seen him have seen him turning up in the Solarian conflict, to perhaps somewhere in the Saganamani arc, uh, maybe as a contrast. And this isn't spoiler; just mentioning the name. Uh, maybe a contrasting character to Damien Harahop, uh, but it doesn't doesn't happen. And uh, I guess one mysterious enigmatic Solarian's probably enough. <laughs> I, I this this was spoiler free. You guys don't get this yet, but trust me, you will. I, I know our listeners who have read the series understand what I'm talking about. I do have some quotes from the story. I, I actually I've got a few quotes to, in, in this. Uh, this first one is a fun and b it's a perfect example of what I said earlier about Zan being completely faithful to David's playground but still making it his own this is uh this is at the point where she's being invited to dinner by the andermani in fact the display blanked honor took a careful breath and only as she glanced around did she notice that every eye on the bridge was pointed at her what she asked trying to sound casual haven't you ever seen someone invited to dinner before venezelos found his voice first It must have been the German accent, he said, his voice studiously bland. Though I've got to say, Skipper, that inviting you aboard wasn't what I expected him to do until he caught your name. You seem to have picked up a new fan all right, ma'am, Mertzinger agreed. How many millions does that make now, Honor shook her head. I swear, when this is all over, I'm going to change my name to Smith, she (laughs) I should have done it months ago. (laughs) It, it, it's completely faithful to the character, but it, it's, I could only see Timothy Zahn writing this. Yeah. Mm. And another, this is sort of an ironic quote, uh, as far as, uh, tying up all the loose ends and, uh, JP, this kind of goes to what we were saying earlier. Good. Hemphill said softly, then allow me to make myself even clearer. You acted out of loyalty to captain Harrington and the fearless. I appreciate that but loyalty must always be balanced with a larger perspective. Here we had the chance, a small one admittedly, but still a chance to feed Haven a line of disinformation that could have tied up its time and resources for years to come. She lifted her chin, and no matter what you, Captain Harrington, or anyone else aboard Fearless ever do with your careers, you will never accomplish anything that could possibly pay that kind of dividend for the Star Kingdom. Understood? Yes, ma'am, Cardona said. Good, Hemphill nodded toward the door. You're hereby detached from your temporary O&I duty. You will return to duty aboard the Fearless when she returns to Manticore in approximately one month. Until then, you're on R&R leave. The omen will give you a copy of your orders. Thank you, ma'am, Cardona said. The ironic part was the, and no matter what you, Captain Harrington, or anyone else aboard the Fearless ever do with your careers, you will never accomplish anything that could possibly pay that kind of dividend. Well, <laughs> actually, they do several times over. Yeah, when so when I read that, all I could do is think about not forgetting who was saying that. Yep, <laughs> exactly. That was Hemp Hill. Now, at the risk of the clock, I do have to add, 
And, and uh, some of my reviews following this one are going to be much shorter, so bear with me. He did add a little bit of a retcon here. Guess where the faster-than-light communications idea came from? This is after Cardona sleeves, in fact. And maybe there was a third bird waiting to be winged by this particular stone. That trick Harrington used, flickering her impellers to signal Neubayern, and I don't speak German very well, so sorry about that, lurking out beyond the hyperlimit, had some definite possibilities. Not as a standard interception tactic, per se. The Andes had to do some very precise maneuvering in order to circle through hyperspace and plant themselves squarely in the escaping raider's path that way. Most Manticoran astrogators weren't competent enough to pull off a trick like that, at least not on a regular basis. But the maneuver itself was almost beside the point. The point was that Harrington had found a way to use gravitational waves to send a signal to the Andes. And since gravitational pulses effectively moved faster than light and were detectable from much further away, especially if they could combine this idea with the new high-yield fusion bottles and superconductors designed for the next-generation electronic warfare drones, and maybe throw in something from the compact LAC beta nodes that were already undergoing testing over at BooWeps. In, in other words, th this was... This was the tickler in Hempfield's head behind the faster-than-light comms and Ghost Rider. I just thought that was a totally clever little retcon. <laughs> that was neat. So, story ratings. Thumbs, gentlemen. Jim. Oh, definitely thumbs up. I, I, yeah, I had a lot of fun. Gentlemen, Jim. Yeah. I had a lot of fun reading this one. JP. I'm going to also provide a thumbs up. Good story. And that's three thumbs up. All right. So move us on, sir. Yes, sir. A ship named Francis by John Ringo and Victor Mitchell. Okay. <laughs> Sean Tyler, a sick birth attendant from the Royal Manticoran Navy, volunteers to serve in the Grayson Space Navy and finds himself aboard the GNS Francis Mueller, an obsolete heavy cruiser crewed by a collection of misfits. Kind of like the wackiest ship in the army, right? Okay. <laughs> the commander of the ship is incompetent. While the Exo seems to have a tendency to be a homicidal maniac, the ship's chaplain delivers daily prayers appealing to the tester that he and the crew are not killed in horrible, nasty ways. The crew entertains themselves by participating in an activity involving sliding through a tube on potato sacks. Along with numerous injuries, the captain winds up in a coma and the EXO takes the opportunity to order half the crew be spaced without due process. Tyler and a superior officer make the EXO think half the crew has been killed until they reach Grayson. Well, there it is. There it is. Yeah. Yep. All right. Background on this story. I don't have a lot for it. I'm not sure when or you know, when it falls in the greater honorverse timeline. And that might, I might've missed that in there, but I, I just couldn't tell. This story is one of John Ringo's two contributions to the honorverse. The second one is also in this anthology, which he authored alone. There was, there was a second author on, on this short story that we're looking at right now. 
Mm-hmm. He appears to be a prolific writer with books that have made the New York Times bestseller list. I have not read anything by him, though, so I discovered that by try- just trying to do a little research on the author. Victor Mitchell, the other author on this story, is, at least as far as I could tell, an unknown in the context of science fiction. He does have some other writing credits, though, out there. These these two partnered up and wrote this story as a contribution to our, our beloved honorverse. For themes, command and leadership, bad examples of those all the way around, kind of as you hinted at there, Jim. And uh, I, I threw in the word slackness because it shows up all the through the story, um, which I thought was interesting that we have individuals and essentially a whole crew that has has coupled to the the problem of slackness. I'm not really Mm -hmm. sure where it came from, but it surfaces here. This isn't the only place we're going to see it, by the way. And and I don't know why it's so emphasized to the point of almost being ridiculous. But that was it. Really, maybe just one theme, command and leadership. But but the slackness is a bonus. Any you guys see any, any other grand themes tied to the the broader universe? Mm, no, it, mm, it, it no seemed my like more of a romp. So yeah, if this was a TV series, I guess this would be that weird um, musical episode that you remember how those would sneak their way into television <laughs> series. Like, what the heck is this? <laughs> like they still are. So oh, the hey the Fringe episode. The fringe musical, e- yes. the fringe musical episodes in, in fringe, th- those are priceless. Yeah, I, I almost peed myself. I was laughing so hard. Uh, Candyman, yeah, for, with with all the corpses, completely un- <laughs> unexpected. But fringe no, most awesome. most recently, uh, Star Trek: uh, Strange New Worlds put out, I think, their second to last episode for this second season of the show. Uh, a musical episode, which I haven't watched yet, but I sure have heard a lot about it. So, hmm. well, this is a great segue into the impressions, and Jim, we're going to go back to you, uh, let, letting us start. Very well. So, after two very serious stories, it was fun to read this McHale's Navy meets Monty Python tale of a ship in peril <laughs> because of a highly dysfunctional crew on a strange ship. I laughed all the way through it. I laughed hardest at the prayers offered by the ship's chaplain, and I do have a quote for this one. Uh, this is this is one of the prayers. Tester, a nasally voice said over the enunciator, spare us this day from your tests. Please, Tester, don't let any of the airlocks blow out. Let the environmental system, old as it is, shudder through another day of labor. Please, Tester, Let the water recyclers make it through a few more days, even though engineering says they're just about shot. Tester, please see fit to keep Fusion 2 from terminally overloading and blowing us all into your arms. We love you, but we want to see our families again someday. Please, Tester, if you could see clear to keeping the compensator online, if we don't have the compensator... We can't make our acceleration back home, and we'll drift in space, a derelict until systems begin to fail, and the power runs out, and the air gets foul, and we start eating each other. (laughs) It continued in the same vein for a good 15 minutes, 
As the quavering voice slowly worked its way through every imaginable disaster scenario. Why does that make me think of the priest in uh, uh, Princess Bride? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Princess Bride was funnier. <laughs> For me, anyway. Humor's in the uh, eye of the beholder. But, yeah. The okay. I, this was kind of just a, a, the story was kind of a, just a bunch of snapshots of goofy crap going on on this ship. Uh, I, I found it amusing and fun. So uh, I'll toss it over to JP. Yep. Well, I'll draw fire for this from somebody, <laughs> no doubt. But uh, I assumed the story was supposed to be funny, but I I just didn't find it funny. There were parts like what you just read that were that were funny, but I didn't find the story funny. It was, and it, and this might be why it was so radically different from anything we've read so far that it felt very out of place. The characters were unbelievable individually, and even more so when they're put together as a crew on a ship, which you know just made it even more unbelievable. The Grace and Space Navy that I think we've all grown to generally respect. Um, I, I can't believe they'd operate this way, putting so many lives in a ship, even an old one with its, uh, hatches and all the things that the, uh, that the past, the, uh, chaplain prayed about, they wouldn't put a ship at risk. Um, it, it definitely makes more sense if this was supposed to just totally be tongue in cheek, but it didn't hit me that way reading it. So bottom line, I'll, you know, being blunt, I hated this story. There was nothing about it that it was appealing or redeeming to me. Uh, to be fair to John Ringo, I suspect I might like his other writings outside of the Honorverse. I, I, there aren't things that um, his co-author wrote that I could find that I m- might stray into. But so it's I'm not critiquing John Ringo. Uh, I just didn't like this story, and I have no quotes. There's a lot you okay. said, JP. I cannot dis. I cannot disagree with. I mean, yeah, but but I liked it more than you did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and maybe if this was a TV show and this was an episode done right, I it would be. I think it would be hilarious. But man, when I, you know, first time, right? For my first contact with this story and these two authors, and I I just didn't like it. So uh, yeah. Well, my, yeah, it's my and, it's my problem to deal with. And it was uh, this. This came from. I would have to say the left field of, of the universe. <laughs> I, I didn't. And when I'm reading these two, I'm not reading the back of the book kind of thing. Like I'm just re I'm jumping in and this, mm-hmm. it was like whiplash. I was like, what am I reading? <laughs> I don't understand what's happening here. Uh-huh. So anyway, Raul, how about you? Okay. JP, I used to hate the story. In fact, I, I would say at one point, you were, you are being kind. However, one of our listeners, Jim, on Reddit in a message conversation, he commented on how he loved the story and it was very nostalgic for him. It, it turns out that he was a submariner and it, it <sighs> okay, I, I, I'll, I'll just go ahead and read it, read, read what yeah. he says. I was on, I, I I sent the comment back to him. Wait, there's actually historic a historical slash real world basis for something like the potato sack races. And his answer: I was on a Los Angeles class submarine. Every time we go out after extended time in port, 
we do what's called angles and dangles. <laughs> they maneuver the sub with increasing up and down elevations. We get to like 25 to 30 degrees up and down angles. This was to check if there was any loose gear slash equipment. Not to explain the sacks we could eject trash from our subs via the trash disposal unit, we could make these cans by rolling metal sheets, and he sends a picture, but we also had bags for foodstuffs. So, angles and dangles plus TDU bag, which is trash disposal unit. So, angles and dangles plus TDU bag plus polished submarine deck equals non-authorized fun times. Yeah, we could get bored out, let's see. Uh, so I, I promised him, I, I promised him, okay, when we get to this story, I'm going to reread it again with a different perspective. Yeah. So yeah, apparently Ringo is basing some of the shenanigans on stuff that, at least the potato sack races, it sounds like it's right out of uh, some of the shenanigans from a Los Angeles class submarine. Yeah. And yeah, I, I, I've actually got a little familiarity with uh, Ringo. I'll talk about that in the next book, which is just him. Now, in that perspective, if you look at this story strictly as comic relief of the Honor Harrington series, it's not quite as bad as I thought it was originally, especially when there is an actual real-world context to it. For me, it's like a Steve Martin or Robin Williams movie. I get the humor. I've just never really appreciated the style of it. Yeah. Uh, plus the fact that it's a short story, and I've already noted my lower enjoyment of short most short st stories in the past. While I have a better appreciation of the story now, in honesty, I would very possibly still s skip it if I was doing a reread just for the sake of a reread. That said, it's certainly better far better, in fact, than some of the old stories that we've uh, talked about, like A Whiff of Grape Shot or Dark Load Strike. So in, in retrospect, and thanks to uh, listener Jim, I am going to change the rating that I would have given it without his input when we get to that. If it's a style of humor you enjoy, you'll like it. If it isn't, you're not going to like it very much. Uh, it, it's just one of those things that if you don't, you know, if it's just really may not be for you. And I'll give my final rating on this one after you guys with your thumbs. So Jim, and I think I know where the thumbs are going to go this time. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, I still gave it a thumbs up. I, I enjoyed it. I liked the break. Uh, I liked the length. Okay. That, <laughs> it truly, yeah, that was, it, nice. tr it would truly was a short story <laughs> and, and it was very quickly to the point. So I, I, I thumbed it up. I, I telegraphed mine as a thumbs down. And so there it is. Hmm. You know, JP, I, just think about this a minute. Maybe maybe it's just a matter that, uh, okay, w the people who seem to like it seem to be Navy, whether they're uh, targets or bubbleheads. Right. Go figure. Hey, this this could marinate a while too, and I might, I might <laughs> it might grow on me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that said, originally that would... If it hadn't been, if it hadn't been for Jim's intervention, it would, I would have been joining you on the thumbs down with it. I've upgraded. I can't give it a thumbs up. So at least I'll still give it a neutral just because it, it's not quite as far fetched as we might've thought. 
So we got one of each for this one. Yeah. So our next story, the fourth story in this anthology, and my glasses are sitting on top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> is a is is a solo uh, by John Ringo, and this one's called "Let's Go to Prague." A pair of Manticoran military spies discuss what they are going to do during their time on leave. John Mullins and Charles Gonzalez decide to head to the peep-held planet Prague. Once there, they are drawn into a plot to rescue People's Navy Admiral Mladek, who wants to defect to Manticore. During the ensuing events, Mullins becomes acquainted with a past love interest named Rachel, whom he had known while he was on a mission on Haven. She helps them along the way with skills that seem a little over the top for her profession. Through a series of twists and turns involving a car chase and costume changes, the two manage to get the Admiral off the planet and to safety. Data he provides to Admiral Givens confirms information Honor Harrington brought with her from her escape from Hades. Mullins and Gonzalez are called on the carpet for the trail of chaos they left in their wake. Mullins discovers Rachel is also an agent for the Office of Naval Intelligence and was in charge of the operation to bring Mladek in. Mullins and Rachel go off on vacation to Griffin. Well, there it is. Mm-hmm. Over to you, JP. All right. Just two themes, espionage and bureaucracy. <laughs> yep. So there you have it. Plain and simple. I think that I think that nails it. So Jim, we're gonna kick it right back to you for uh impressions, your thoughts on the book, and if you had any quotes. Okay. Uh this one is a serious but also humorous story of things that go on behind the scenes during a war. Has kind of a keystone cops feeling for me. I mean it's it's kind of madcap. Uh, I did love the callback to the James Bond franchise and there seemed to be a few other references in there. Uh, star Wars, I thought might've been part of it. But at any rate, uh, there was a lot of action and plot twists crammed into this short story and I don't have any quotes. Go ahead, JP. Okay. JP, your thoughts. This one was better than the previous story. The connection being Ringo. I'm not really sure Mm -hmm. why, since these two stories are my only exposure to Ringo, and the last story, as I'd mentioned, was my only exposure to uh, Victor Mitchell. There were definitely similarities, I thought, in the writing style, but there should be, and the humor. So I'm going to give Ringo credit for redeeming himself, but but just a little. (laughs) The, The characters here were on the verge of unbelievable. But when it came to the more serious parts of the story, they established credibility. So that was that was good. As you mentioned, Jim, there was a cool and brief reference uh, to James Bond, at least one. The one that stood out to me was when they refer to their quartermaster as Q and then and then knew that it had it was a reference or a you know, it was a an enduring nickname for their quartermaster, but didn't didn't know why where it had come from. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and all I could all I could think of was, if nothing else, the word quartermaster starts with a Q. Just run with that. But um, 
and which is what, what the dealio was with bond by the way if you guys didn't know you know like uh the boss the boss was m management yep the quartermaster was q quartermaster the money lady well was miss Moneypenny. she didn't get a letter but but stuff like that so I, but i i thought that was a pretty cool tip of the hat to the bond the bond uh mm-hmm. world the bond universe given that this was about a couple of silly spies I think this would have actually been an awesome story if it was a little more serious and a little less goofy. Okay. Um, but I also think I might have been, I might have, I might have been sporting a bruise from the story before this one as I was reading reading this story. So I'm may may have been a little more tender than I needed to be. And I have no quotes. Yeah, I, you know, some of the lightheartedness does kind of fit in with the Bond books too. Yeah. Yeah, or um, Austin Powers. I, I I would say this is more. Re- I would call this one a little more representative of uh, Ringo. I the the my main exposure to him has been through the Pulsing Wars books, though I was only able to get through the first few uh, in the initial series. Mostly, it, and it wasn't because of the writing quality that I stopped reading. It was my son was born, and I had no time for anything. For the next eighteen months. Oh yeah, blame it, it on your kid. Blame it on your kid. <laughs> this story is a complete and total standalone in the series. It's a mystery spy story rather than military sci-fi. It takes place on Earth, and it's one of the few times we've actually been to Seoul so far in the saga. It does get the honorvis right. I have to give it that. Uh, the James Bond callouts were fun. And frankly, of the non-Weber complete standalones stories that have no connection, you know, that have no other connection with the universe, this one's probably the best so far. My only problem, real problem with the story is just that. It's a short story taking place in the universe and nothing more. It doesn't really contribute anything to the larger arc as a whole you know and, and that's fine that that's fine honestly acting you know completely completely fine the story is what this story is it's an honest and faithful adventure in the universe come go done wrap uh oh i i do have one comment they, they make about a comment about the czech beer being better than seaford nine god that seaford nine beer must be horrendous i've had the original Czechoslovakian Budweiser before. And if anyone considers that beer good, wow. Just just saying. <laughs> that said, let's go ahead. I don't have any quotes. I, I At this point, I was thinking I was getting a few too many. So let's move on to story ratings uh, and our thumbs. Okay, I gave it a thumbs up. I, I thought it was amusing. I'm going... JP. I'm going to deviate from what I... Th- Put down on paper when I read it. Uh, I was going to grade this one a neutral, and uh, but I I think I might go ahead and give it a thumbs up. Or if there was a a neutral plus or a thumbs up minus, is somewhere in there. Um, okay. As this one is has kind of a little time has passed. I I find more about it that I like than I did, and I I meant what I said earlier. You know, I I rolled from the previous story into this one at, without a break, and I I think I was just not happy with where that last story went. So uh-huh. I probably had a more critical eye than I should have. Raul. You know, J- JP, we're on the same page here. Yeah. It, for, for me, this is a hard one to rate. 
uh, and I kind of feel bad about it. I, I really, I, I feel bad about, I feel bad about giving it a neutral rating because it's far, far better. It's a far, far better story yeah. than it's ship named Francis, in my yes. opinion. I didn't dislike it, but there wasn't anything that pulls me into giving it a thumb up either. And the truth of the matter is, I think it's my own biases, my own general dislike of short stories that gets in the way. Yeah. So I think like you, I am probably going to call this one at the end of the day, a thumb up. You know, a part of what formed and, my little shift there was like, if I, if I was king for a day and David Weber can, you know, throat punch me for this or whatever, I... If this anthology didn't have a ship named Francis in it, and this was the this was yes still here, I think my reaction to the whole thing would have been very different. Would have been and better. So I'm gonna give credit to Ringo. Um, and by the way, I'd like to read some of what he's written outside of these two stories later because I I really do think he's a good writer, and he's done some collaborations with uh, David Weber as well. Yeah. Keep in mind. So I I, I, I want to put those on my reading list, but yeah. I really want to get back and read. This story makes me want to go back and pick up some of Ringo's uh, novel writing and uh, see what those look like. Somewhere in those bookshelves behind me, I know I've got uh, at least two of the Pulsing War books. All right. So that so we had a, a thumbs up and a thumbs up, a shift to a thumbs up, and then a, were you a neutral or were you a thumbs up? I, I ended up going back to the thumbs up. Okay, so. Okay. In the La Martine sector, a perverted and sadistic people's commissioner is murdered. After receiving word of the failed McQueen coup, two super dreadnoughts arrive on the scene to keep control over the people's navy there. Oscar Sanjust uh, dispatches special investigator Victor Cachet to La Martine to deal with the situation. He pronounces the entire state sec unit to be severely corrupt and begins making arrests and performing interrogations. Citizen Commissioner Yuri Rademacher and his subordinate Sharon Justice, along with several others, are arrested as suspects of the murder. Rademacher and Justice are severely beaten during their interrogations, but are better off than many who were in prison or just executed. Rademacher is found innocent of being involved with the murder, and Cachet appoints him his assistant. Cachet then takes a task force to resume commerce protection patrols previously stopped after the coup. Rademacher remains behind to root out remaining corrupt elements from the state sec ship working with Marines. Later, the task force returns to find the captain of the Hector Van Dragen, Galanti, has lost her composure and is going berserk over the news of the Theisman coup. In her rage, she threatens to destroy the Tilden and the rest of the task force. Rademacher and his party intervene and kill Galanti. With San Just gone and the Manticore Havenite War in ceasefire, Cachet admits he always knew who killed Jamka. He tells all it was a group led by the by Justice and a Marine captain for torturing and killing a Navy raiding. Cachet used his subterfuge to expose and eliminate the, an entire group involved with Jamka along with other corrupt members of State Sec. 
With everything resolved, Cachet orders Rademacher to arrest him while renouncing his title. A courier arrives with news that the new Havenite government is being led by Eloise Pritchard, Kevin Usher, head of the Federal Investigative Agency, and his wife arrive to take Cachet back to Haven. When she sees how fatigued Cachet is, she chastises them, saying that they were mean to him. Well, there it is. And All over right. to you, JP. So uh, the background, some of it is embedded in the description of the story. It takes place just before and then right up to when St. Just is killed. It also seems, by the way, to have direct a direct connection to and seems to follow the short story from the Highlands. Yes. And that, for those that recall, was in Changer of Worlds that, uh, when we read that. Yeah, I make that connection because we see characters we've seen before, Kevin and Virginia Usher, Victor Cachat, for sure those three. Um, mm-hmm. So there's there's some cool weaving of things together here. Flint is another known author for us. He wrote from the Highlands and also collaborated with David on all four novels in the Crown of Slaves series. He created the character of Victor that we saw in this story uh, and previously. We've talked about Eric before and his relationship to David. There's, I think, a lot to be learned in the real world through their relationship that was formed as they wrote these stories together. And uh, we've talked about that a little bit. And as I recall, David talked about it when we had the opportunity to interview him. Uh, briefly mentioned some of that. Uh, yeah. Things about that relationship. So very, just a lot to be admired there. And Flint is a, I think is a pretty amazing author. Themes related authoritarianism, and we really we see some of the ripples that come out from that when there's sudden unease about what might have replaced the previous authoritarian government ends mm-hmm. justifying the means. There's examples of that going on here, and it that doesn't produce a good thing overall. Ethics and morality more broadly, that's a that's a theme here. Context and circumstances matter and don't necessarily change the definitions of right and wrong, but we're watching characters kind of do that, uh, not for good. And then I, you know, before when I had thrown slackness in on, uh, on a ship called Francis as a theme, that shows up here again, but not a lot. But there are references to this issue of slackness, and it's coming, as I recall, from Victor. Uh, part of what his beef is, apparently, is he's purging out the, the, the problem children. So again, not not ridiculous like it was in a ship named Francis, but it was here. So, and I I still don't really know. How, like all of a sudden, this shows up, this theme, this concept of slackness. So I'm going to have to assume that this was somewhere in either the general story guidance that these authors got from David, or or uh, it was handled here. And well. Um, he either gave, he this was either a theme he gave them or not. If, if whether it was or it was not, I, I, because this is a different author, I'm going to assume it was. But it was handled way better here and how it was weaved into the story than than previously by uh, by Ringo. So that's that's kind of it. Slackness again. I don't know if I really call that a theme, but 
authoritarianism, ends justifying the means, ethics and morality. Those are certainly themes that we've seen elsewhere in the honorverse. Yeah, it, it is uh, uncharacteristic of the honorverse to have slackness aboard a ship. I mean, we saw how that was dealt with um, in the very first novel, Basilisk mm-hmm. Station. Honor had to get on a level with McKeon so that she could get through to him that he was a better officer than he was showing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At any rate, uh, yep. I'll go on with my impressions. I really like this story for the, uh, for the big twist. Okay. At the end, I thought, you know, here's this guy. He's a thoroughgoing bastard. All right. Yeah. Evil as hell. And, and this lady that likes him were, was angry with everybody for being mean to him after he's killed all these people and tortured and done all these things. Uh, the way he operates shows he believes deeply in the ends justify the means theme, as you mentioned, JP. Uh, he will go to any lengths to achieve his goals, and whoever, whomever gets in his way, they better watch out. Yeah. Okay. Kicking the ball back to you, JP. I like this story quite a bit. Um, it was hard to read, though, because because of uh, it, brutality. I mean, it's just a, this is a tough story. Kashad is is brutal. It was especially good to have a story that felt like it belonged in the honorverse after the last two, uh, or this felt, it felt like it felt like a part of the honorverse. The last one, uh, Raul, I like that, how you describe that as a standalone, um, that, that makes sense out of it some more, uh, two, two stories back. I, I, you know, just had a hard time. Yep. I love and hate the character of Victor Kashat. He's incredibly, believable as an evil person that because he was written so well, he's a perfect villain. I think I can't, <laughs> I can't wait for more from Eric Flint. I, th- these little tastes we're getting are just getting me excited about the, the novels that he's worked with David. How about you, Raul? Okay. Uh, first of all, JP, to answer something you mentioned, yes, this story officially is a sequel to from the Highlands. Uh, we've got more background on Anton and Kathy in War of Honor, but I know people were wondering about Kasha and Usher. Yeah. Well, we do know that Ka- Kevin Usher is part of the Pritchard cabinet. Yes. So really, it's Victor Kasha for whom we, you know, really want the background. Okay. Well, okay. Actually, that's not quite accurate. We need the background on Victor. He is one of the most important characters in the Crown of Slaves series and in the Mason arc. And this story gives us the background and the kickoff point for his growth arc. Nice. Given the particular nature of this character, that baseline is, shall we say, somewhat important. Uh, To put it simple, Victor Kasha is not a good person. He is the first person who will tell you that, in fact. I think there's you. He he carries some of that baggage about that about him. You're you're going to wonder whether or not he's either a sociopath or a psychopath, and I don't mean that in the generic sense. I mean that on the actual spectrum. Yeah. Yet in the same breath, he is as highly moral as Thomas Tiesman. And in fact, and th- this is the reason why he I would don't think he is a sociopath or psychopath. It's that moral righteousness that gives him his justification for his brutality. 
And he, he is absolutely focused on doing the right thing, the just thing, no matter how unpleasant it is or who has to be sacrificed, including himself. I, I mean, he, he doesn't hesitate to have the crap beaten out of himself if it serves the greater good. And because of that, he can be more brutal than even Oscar St. Just. But there's some important differences here. His commitment, which we can see here, and you guys have mentioned it, is to the principles he believes in, and they're not twisted by his own ego. Uh, and he, he, He's seen enough suffering and misery that it's a part of his life. Keep in mind, he'll state sec. In fact, the people he was so brutal to were unquestionably as brutal or more and without the self-righteousness. As a result of that, I think he cares, in a, and you'll see this as he grows, he cares in a way that St. Just doesn't. He doesn't inflict or demand anything of others that he isn't ready to take in and on himself. And more important, there, there, there's an innocence to the guy. There, there's an, and we see that at the very end that, I, that, uh, that, that we see when, when Jenny chastises everyone for being mean to him. Yeah. Because he, he, he's upset about not having any friends. There, there's an innocent there. That innocence, I think, helps give him some pr- protection from just becoming another St. Just. Um, and, and I know I, I, I'm not looking, I, I'm combining the two short stories, but I, I've also, I'm also looking at it from the perspective going forward. But just from the two short stories here, you, you can see that Victor kind of embodies the idea that sometimes it takes bad people who love enough to sacrifice themselves. And I don't mean that in the sense of being killed, but who love enough to sacrifice themselves so that others can be good. Mm. In in a way, it kind of reminds you of uh, the movie Serenity, the closer for the <laughs> yeah for the mm. Firefly, the operative. I I yep. I'll tell you what I just this is one of, Victor is one of the scariest yes people because he's like he'll he'll kick your butt, break your face, and 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 do whatever he he has done to these people, and he just looks at him and it's like please don't take it personally. No. Yeah, and, and like I said, he 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 does things where he fully expects he's going to be killed as a result of it, yeah. or he gets the crap. He knows he's going to get the crap beaten out of him yeah. as a result of it, and he's doing it because he thinks it's the right thing to do and it's necessary. Yeah, you don't want to like Victor Kasha. You really don't want to like him, but you can't what? help. Yeah, yeah, you can't help it. And all I'm going to say is, gentlemen, look forward to seeing his growth. Oh, he's going to be back, huh? Oh, he like I said, he's going to be one of the central characters. He, he's going to be one of the the more most important characters in uh, the Crown of Slave series. Oh my gosh! So we're going oh. we're going into the dark side <laughs> of the honor. Very much so. And uh, thank you, Eric Flint. He will have more than a couple of uh, appearances in the main uh, the the central series as well. Oh boy! In connection, so. I'm not going to say anything more. Um, I don't have any quotes for this one. I, I, I don't know what I could have picked out as a quote beyond Jenny's, but you were, <laughs> you were mean to him. Yep. And from there, I want to go straight into the ratings. Okay. It was dark. It was disturbing. It was way realistic. And I gave it a thumbs up. I agree. I gave it a thumbs up also. 
ditto that, and for exactly the same reason. Yeah. All right. Our final story, uh, The Service of the Sword by David Weber. All right. The first Grayson-born member of the GSN, Abigail Hearns, is assigned to her midshipman cruise aboard the HMS Gauntlet under the command of Captain Michael Overstegen. Right from the start, Abigail suspects Overstegen is one of a number of officers who behave in a condescending and contemptuous manner towards Grayson's. The Gauntlet is sent to the Tiberian system to learn the circumstances of two missing ships, the Havenite transport Windover and the Erewhon destroyer Star Warrior. Overstegen chooses Abigail to lead a team to the surface of the planet Refuge to meet with the leader of the Fellowship of the Select, a religious body, and the sole inhabitants of Refuge. Abigail is accompanied by Marine Sergeant Mateo Gutierrez. While the Fellowship was cooperative, they had no helpful information to share. The Manticorans don't know that Manpower Incorporated are using the system as a staging area for four heavy cruisers crewed by Silesian pirates responsible for the disappearance of the two ships that Gauntlet was searching for. When two of the cruisers return to the system, they are discovered by Gauntlet. Haiching Ringstorf, the Manpower Supervisor of the operation in Tiberius, orders the four cruisers to engage Gauntlet. When Overstegen discovers the threat he is under, he orders Abigail and her party to take cover on refuge. After taking damage during the destruction of one of the manpower ships, he heads into hyperspace. Two of the manpower ships pursue Gauntlet, while one stays behind to hunt the party on refuge. Abigail's party is discovered, and the pirates start chasing them on the ground. Fearing that her entire party will be wiped out, she decides to lead a small detachment to provide a rear defense with Sergeant Gutierrez. They engage in a running battle that lasts several hours and loses a number of Marines. It came to a point where it looked like Abigail and what was left of her detachment were about to be overrun, but the badly damaged gauntlet returns after defeating the two pirate ships pursuing it. Gauntlet then destroys the ship in orbit around Refuge, and the remaining pirates on the surface are forced to surrender. Abigail is decorated with the conspicuous gallantry medal in the presence of Overstegen, her father, the Steadholder Owens, Queen Elizabeth, and Honor Harrington. Well, there it is. Yeah. All right. And the context or the background on this as you can tell, is that it takes place after the war between Manticore and Haven pauses um, due to that armistice and the change in government and Manticore, the acceptance of the ceasefire and so on. This is occurring right, right around then. Themes would be leadership and followership, mm-hmm. officership and the development of junior officers, which we saw in an earlier short story. In this case, though, it's midshipwoman Hearns. Uh, rules of engagement... And what constitutes hostile intent? It's a little snippet in the story, but we've been seeing that really from the very first novel. You know, what it, what point do you engage the enemy? Sometimes it's blatant, and in this case, it was it took the interpretation of Overstegen 
of the events going on, the circumstances going on around him, the actions of the enemy, as he describes it, and says that they basically have shown that they're hostile. So he authorizes the use of force, and away they go. Mm-hmm. So uh, interesting coupling in my simple mind of this story to Fanatic. Contrast that in particular with Victor Kashat and his actions. This is a very different scenario. With Victor, the ethics and morality are malleable. They're flexible. But here, they aren't to be manipulated for the convenience of someone trying to justify selfish or, and I don't know that Victor was particularly selfish, but more broadly, selfish or ignoble actions. So this is not an ends justifies the means. No, even if you're questioning that with regard to Victor, the people he was sent there to hunt and put down definitely were resorting to violence for exactly those reasons. So, but rules of engagement is the observation of of a or the mm-hmm. offering of a theme here that we've seen in in the other books and and some of the other stories. Any other yeah. thoughts before we? I think jump I think you can even make that. I think you can make it even a little more general than rules of engagement. When is it appropriate to resort to violence? Yeah, in general, uh, because that that fits right into Abigail's problem coming from Grayson with the uh, fellowship. Preemption is another word. Not, yeah. not synonymous with ROE or when to use violence, but uh, for those that saw it or heard it or were aware of it, there was an interesting discussion that went on at times throughout the Gulf War about the allies, the NATO NATO and or UN forces to include the United States. You know, Do we take action because it's we've been attacked or are we taking action because all the indicators are that we're going to be attacked? And this is preventative. We're you're not re- you're not waiting to be fired upon, right? Do not fire until fired upon. You're saying all the indicators are there that they're going to shoot at me in the interest of what I'll just sloppily call self defense. You go ahead and engage while you have the advantage to prevent loss on your own side. It's a gamble. It's analysis. It's interpretation. It's a lot of things, but we. We do get a little of that here with Oberstegen and his decision to use force, as you said, Raul. Mm-hmm. Oh, how about the hey. impressions? Impressions, Sir Jim. Jim. <laughs> Thoughts? I thought this was an epic, heroic story. Just in in a nutshell, it was just awesome. Okay, the the I like the manpower thing is starting to ramp up. I don't like those guys very much, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we're actually supposed to. I do like Captain Overstegen and hope to see more of him in the other books. I enjoyed the way his speech was presented in the text, giving him his own unique voice. I mean, there was no doubt who was talking when he cranked up. My only question is, is why did I keep hearing Quint's voice every time he spoke? (laughs) You know, there's a problem there, Jim. If people don't recognize what you're talking about, and you actually go and look, try to look up, uh, you know, find something from Quint in, on YouTube. Usually, the only thing you can find is his last line. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> well, we didn't get any of that from over. No, you you got to find you. So, folks, if you want to look that up, you, you'll have to find something earlier in the movie. Yeah. I, obviously, this is a reference to Jaws, folks. Yeah, for you youngins. Well, I would I would refer you to uh, the scene where they're gathered down below deck, 
the three the the three guys in Jaws and listen to yep. Quint's description of the Indianapolis. Um, hmm. if, if, that, bring, that'll probably be the one you find that after searching through a whole bunch of ogs. <laughs> yeah. That will be the one you most likely will find. Yeah. And it, it, his story will bring tears to your eyes if you have any feelings at all. So uh, go ahead, JP, with your thoughts. All right. Without hesitation, this is my favorite story in the anthology, and that would, and then followed by, so you're like, well, we know what you didn't like and what you liked. So this, this is the favorite, followed by Fanatic and Promised Land. I love the character of Abigail Hearns. She's referred to within the story as Harrington's protege, and that seems to be a totally fair statement. At the end of the story, we see her decorated and commissioned in a very similar way that we saw happen to Honor after her midshipman cruise. Initially, I didn't care for Overstegen because we're seeing him through Abigail's eyes. And uh, so we see we see what she's seeing. We see this potential bias uh, or attitude or whatever you want to call it. But he seems like he's a decent guy. But, but there, man, there's something about him at first. But as the story unfolds, we realize that his leadership style accounted for the variety of his uh, subordinates and how he handled people. In the end, and then I'll, and I'll say, in spite of his family and political connections, I definitely grew to appreciate him. Like you, Jim, I want to see I want to see more of this character. Yeah. And we get another great naval battle. Oh yeah, and I have no quotes. So over to you, Raul. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to I have to be careful in my comments on this on this one. Uh, I have to say, calling this a short story is a bit di- definitely a bit disingenuous. <laughs> yeah, uh, there are six entries in this uh, anthology, and this one story even stretches the concept of a novella in that it takes up uh, at least a fourth of that uh, fairly long tome in itself. Yeah, I'm not complaining though. Uh, this story slightly edges out Promised Land as my favorite. As far as its overall importance to the saga itself, the only short story more important, in my opinion, is from the Highlands. In the same way that this story provides the starting point for the Crown of Slaves arc, this story is foundational to the Saganami Island arc. Now, we've seen Abigail in the past, okay? If you remember yep. uh, when she was teaching at Saganami Island, she was a cadet under honor. Yeah. Yep, sure do. And way back then, I said, keep an eye on her. You you can absolutely see the influence honors had on her, directly and indirectly, to the point where you can easily imagine Abigail Hearns being envisioned by the author as a possible successor to honor. Say, if honor had died in uh, ash in uh, at all costs or something yeah, like that yeah. for example she might on- only air quotes there for those who can't see she might only be a grace and woman but she is obviously used to wielding authority a- and let's face it she is the princess of a she is the princess of a head of state yeah. as uh Overstegen points out uh rather bluntly bluntly yep he's pretty frank about that Frankly, Abigail highlights some of my issues with Lindstrom's take on the Graysons when, when she is discussing or placing women's 
roles on Grayson compared to Masada. This is an example of why I think she's being a little overly harsh on it. Hear me out. Linskold? Linskold, yes. We also get an introduction to Michael Overstegen. Yes. Yep. You Uh, you just said an introduction, so you made made me smile. Yep. He is a bit pompous, annoying type of nobleman that you don't particularly like. And if you don't like him, just be patient. He's going to grow on you, and that's a good thing because he is going to have a big role in the Saganami Island series. I'll I'll just say that. You even begin to suspect, you know, some of his affections, like his accent. You, you you kind of begin to wonder, even by the end of this short story, who is he actually making fun of by affecting those? Um, he he's he might look a lot like his Lord Highridge, yeah. but he definitely thinks in different uh terms he is his so own for, man as they say yep. for all of he his annoying habits he really is a good guy and if you have any doubt about that go back and take a look at the way he dresses down Gregovacius. yeah by the way does anyone remember that final question i asked david during our interview oh my gosh en- enlighten uh, us what was it what do you remember i i i may i had asked i had asked david when are we going to see uh, Mike Hinky yes. and... Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he backed away from your question. <laughs> uh, well, he, not only that, he tossed out another. It's like, I would have thought you would have asked that about Mike Hinky and uh, Michael Overstegen. Yep. I, I, I still think Lester Torville would be a better... J- just because of the way it would cement the two uh, nations. And, and really demonstrate the way they've put so much behind them. But anyway, oh, we're going to see a little bit of Mateo Gutierrez as well. So keep that. Don't cool. forget about that character. This story clearly, as you guys have figured out already, it's setting up the Mason and Solarian arcs. By the way, those who've read the books before, all of the books uh, before, you're going to note that the Congo system was brought up here. That's probably something worth noting. And a, a lot, a final little tidbit. You remember how we've been told how large and powerful the Solarian League Navy is, right? Yeah, just recently it was. I ordered it just how darn powerful. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Overstegen was in a heavy cruiser against four other heavy cruisers. The the, the cruise might not have been up to Mentorin standards, but you're still talking about a four to one level of being outgunned by modern Solarian heavy cruisers. Yeah. We kind of get a bit of a hint of what the actual reality of that disparity is. Here. Yeah. And there was, I, I feel horrible. I can't remember. We, uh, we just saw this, might've even been in this book. And there was a brief, uh, I'll say surface explanation for why there might be a disparity. And it had to do with the league itself and how it's structured. It was in War of Honor. Okay, yeah. So it, there was no depth to the explanation, but we were told the I stage was I think that was, was actually set. part of one of my quotes. Okay, yeah. But um, so it's, it's cool now to get a, get a snapshot of what that looks like in practice. Yep. The 50-year out-of-date comment. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So we, we, we just got a taste of that. And I did have a quote uh, it, it took me a while. For some reason, I couldn't find it, and I finally managed to find it right before our show. Go for it. It's Abigail. 
like I said, she she clearly is used to wielding authority. Uh, the, no doubt that she's an actual, she's a crown princess here. So, oh, not crown princess. Well, actually, I'm uh, sorry. That, close enough. I mean, we. she's no, yeah, she's nobility. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that for now. On a planet full of nonviolent religious types, Watson snorted again harder, then paused. This is after Abigail gave Gutierrez his orders, all right? It's like, no, you're going to do it my way. I'm going with them alone. You're going to wait at the ship. Not bad for uh, Mitty on her uh, snotty cruise there. So, on a planet full of nonviolent religious types, Watson snorted again harder, then paused. Well... Gutierrez is a Marine, so I suppose he could be a little less trusting than us Navy types. But my read right this minute is that he's just a bit on the disgusted side. I think he put her down as one of those Little Miss Sunshine types who thinks the universe is populated solely by kindly, helpful souls. Abigail? Atkins shook his, her head. She's a Grayson, ma'am. I know that. You know that. Hell, Gutierrez knows that. But he's also down on a planet we don't know anything about, really, on a first-hand basis. And his pablum-brained midshipwoman has just gone tripsing off with, on her own with one of the locals. Not something exactly designed to give a Marine the most lively possible faith in her judgment. You think it was the wrong decision, Atkins asked curiously? No, not really. I'm going to give her a little grief over it when we get her back on board and suggest I sent those Marines along for a reason. But I'm not going to smack her for it because I think I know why she did it. Besides, she's the one down there, not me. And overall, I think I have considerable faith in her judgment. That yeah. speaks really, really yeah. highly about Abigail Hearns. Yeah. Good quote. And it, I think it reflects the uh, captain's faith, not just Watson's in, in her. And uh, it really does kind of give you a feel for some of the dynamics between her and Gutierrez already. And of course, we find out as, as the story progresses that no, she's not a pablum-brained midshipwoman <laughs> who, who's all flowers and sunshine in her thinking. No, she she is Honor Harrington's protege. Very much so. Yep. I, but that, that quote just struck me. It was, it, it was the perfect thought at the perfect time. So, gentlemen... Ready your thumbs, Jim. <laughs> All right. As I said before, epic, heroic story. Uh, thumbs up. Favorite short story, long story in this book? Thumbs up. I agree. This was also my favorite long short story. Thumbs up on there. And folks, if you haven't read the anthologies, amongst the short stories you really want to read... Even if you, if you I, I would encourage you to read all of them. This one is a must read. It, it's too much important. It, there's too much important background here. Same for Fanatic. Same for uh, Promised Land. Sa same for Promised Land. Yeah, the, these are important stories to the arts. All and, right. Wow. I think that takes us down to overall ratings for the anthology as a whole. Yeah, yeah. For the book. by the way, we, we said it, I think I said it at the beginning, there were five stories here. There's six. Obviously, there are six. Yeah, we counted Six stories wrong. and six authors, and uh, yeah. Five if we it's don't a count a book. ship named Francis. I'm okay uh. with that. Let's go with five. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Jim, I know you liked it. 
Well, I I thought it was amusing. Well, like uh, I said, the people uh, who are going to like that kind of humor are going to like the story. Those who don't, won't. Yeah. It's that simple. Yeah. All right. We have um, our ratings. I'll go first. I I gave the volume of five self-sealing Sten bolts. <laughs> hey, I got my laugh. All right. JP, what about you? Given the my small change of heart with the one story, I'm going to give the volume a four. I was going to give it a 3.5, but I'm going to go with a with a four four circuit breakers. Aha. <laughs> Raul, <laughs> what you got? I am going to also give it a four for somewhat similar reasons to JP here. The the reread of it with uh, listener Jim, not ho- co-host Jim's, ho- helped me through the uh, first uh, Ringo story a little bit better. So that makes it a five and two fours. So that's a, I'm going to guess a four, three. Is a, Jim, do you have the calculator of justice that you can unleash on the real math? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I I had to take my shoes off. Needed the toes over this one. So yeah, overall we're giving this a four point three three rating. All right. And uh, Goodreads reported four point eleven with four thousand five hundred and thirty one ratings, and Amazon a four point seven with eight hundred and twenty five ratings. All right. So once again, we're within the range. Yep. Of, uh, fandom at large yes so those that's uh that's how we we see this one on our next very exciting episode uh we're going to read crown of slaves uh it's from the crown of slaves series number one it's authored by david weber and eric flint so uh jp you get your wish heck yeah yeah and uh, uh christmas in the hot weather time Yes, and we have some shout-outs. Why don't you go ahead and go first, JP? Okay. I told you I had this one up, and I lost track of it. So from a new listener named Helen, she sent me a note and said, she's she. by the way, she is uh, three or so books into the series and is also a first-time reader. And then oh, she great. just recently listened to uh, our first episode on uh, Basilisk Station, and she sent me a note and said, finished your first episode. It was fun hearing your thoughts. So she's apparently um, enjoying what our commentary or our, our, our thoughts on, on the show. So, Helen, thank you. Yes. And uh, Raul, do you have any? Yeah, I... And... Uh, in in addition to the the usual suspects like like Baz and Conrad and such and Rhonda on Facebook, uh, Reddit picked up a lot of life surprisingly. And you know what's interesting? Where a lot of the conversation, uh, the the most conversation from Honor Harrington seems to take place in the Babylon Five subreddit. Uh, particularly in this case that I'm bringing out, part of the reason uh, I was even posting there on this was David pointed out uh, some of his fondness for Babylon 5, so I figured, hey, I've got to let the Bab 5 people know. And boy, that opened a floodgate. 
Uh, search continues. Janagua, uh, gosh, uh, Gerkeus, Canadinus, uh, lo- lots of folks were, were tossing out uh, comments and thank yous. But in particular, Sir Ed Kalat, S-I-R, capital E, capital D, capital C, lowercase a, capital L-O-T. He may had a comment on the interview that I just want to read flat out. Uh, you guys are going to like this. I just finished this today, and I thought it was excellent. For the most part, you do exactly what an interviewer should do. Prime the discussion, then shut up and let the guest talk, <laughs> and just occasionally guide the discussion to cover the points you want to cover, especially for someone like David Weber, who's obviously very intelligent and has a lot to say. An awful lot of interviewers love to put their own stuff in there, but you guys mostly avoid that. So thank you for that. (laughs) That's not to say that you guys aren't interesting. Just that when you have three guys who are on every episode and one very special guest, we want to hear from the guest a lot more than the hosts. There you go. I last read Honor a number of years back, including some of the spinoffs, and got up to at all costs, and I think that's where there was the, and I think that's all there was at the time. Sounds like it's a time for a reread. Also, we'll be checking out this podcast from the beginning. Nice. So yay, Thank you. yeah, you gentlemen, you, you've got a lot of positive comments on there, and apparently, we might have broke uh, the servers with the uh, <laughs> with with the. Uh, David Weber interview because one of the other things that came up uh, repeatedly was folks having trouble accessing it. Oh, uh, they kept timing out. Wow. So we don't know if we did that or not, but let we'll take the credit <laughs> <laughs> if that's a thing that we want credit for. Hey, by yeah. the way, that that um, I meant to bring this up before and I didn't about the interview, but one of the things that just amazed me about David is. We're asking the questions we ask, and he's providing an incredible amount of info, is that he clearly remembers everything that's in every book, like what book stuff is in. It was really cool to hear him say, well, in Pick a Title, when so-and-so said to the other so-and-so the thing, and and I'm thinking, and and this is a compliment uh, from me these stories are so well written that i lose track of what was in what book and it i just it's amazing to me that he could he knows where everything happened in every by book and that's stunning Mm -hmm. to me because it's not like these are five books right yeah these are a lot of books so and each book is a lot of books yeah so uh i meant to throw that out there um david if you're listening that was something that i was uh, among all the other stuff that I, I just thought, wow, what a gift that, yeah, uh, with the volume of what you've created in the universe, the honorverse universe, if that's not redundant, that mm-hmm. you seem to know where everything is in those novels and short stories, and it's that's cool to me. But yeah, enough of that. You know, he's he's been very he, he he was not only very generous with us with with the time that he gave us Incredibly. but he, yeah. he was he, he made it very clear he he would love to come back at some point when the time is right and we need we kind of need to figure out what would be a good point 
to do that. Yeah. And I would love to get some feedback from our, you know, some thoughts from our listeners on that. I'm just going to toss it out as, as a first thought. Um, and you can't e- say either... every episode. No, That's... no, no. <laughs> yeah. Um, We'd love that I, I'm too. Thinking, but... I'm thinking possibly either right after at all costs or right before mission of honor. But I'm really kind of thinking doing it right after at all costs. Mm. Yeah. So, so, so simply because we've got the first book of Crown of Slaves, we've got the first book of Saganami Island, and we've gotten all of these anthologies, the critical anthologies yeah. put in up to this point. Yeah. And it's also before we get into the closing the the, the real second part of the story. The, the, this at a cost closes off so many things. Uh but it's either there or mission of honor. Sounds good. Yeah, so I can't, I, I, I can't comment, but all of you who no. read these, the rest of these, jump I'm in there, please, with Raul. Yeah, and uh, give your give your thoughts, or your feedback, because yeah. this, you know, we're going to get to invite him on the show again, and uh, let's pick a good place. Yeah, yep. I'm just uh, sad that that Eric Flint is no longer with us because yeah. I would have loved to have been able to spend some time with him at at a possibility at some point. Yep. Yes. Even him and David at the same time. That would have been. Oh God, that would be a riot. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Who and Jim, do you have any shout outs? Who would want to edit it? Uh, no. no. <laughs> it's going to go so, raw. Yeah. I would say, I first of all, I want to say is my impression of our interview was uh, how, and I can't help but call him David, it made us feel like we've known him all our lives. Yeah. I mean, he mm-hmm. was just so darn friendly and and open with everything. That was really neat. My shout-out, though, is last but not least, Hank Davis and the TP Network of fun and informative podcasts. Thank you, Hank. We're, we're sure glad we're on board your ship. Yeah. Amen. So that brings us to the end of another one. And uh, it's time to go. I'll say good night, and uh, you say good night, JP. Good night, JP. Bye bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to Honorverse today. We welcome your feedback. Email us at honorverse at tpenetwork.com. We are a proud part of TPE Network. Visit us on the web at honorverse.net, on social media, or tpenetwork.com. You can subscribe to Honorverse today by visiting tpenetwork.com slash subscribe. Visit TPE Network for the very best in podcasting. Opinions expressed in the show are solely those of the hosts. They do not reflect the opinions or views of Bain Books, the authors, or TPE Network. Visit Bain.com for the best in science fiction. Many of their books are available from the Bain Free Library found at their site. Music is Honor and Sword by Zakar Valaha.
Check his website found in the show notes for all your podcasting music needs. <laughs>